morning. How y'all doing? We had a mic pack problem earlier, in case you're wondering. So we're, we're down to one. <laughs> Our goal for the Peace is Worth It campaign was $275,000 until this morning. It's $275,500. That's, we're going <laughs> to, it's just a joke. It's just financial humor for the church. Everybody take a breath. So, hey, listen, my name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads. And, and I say here at Crossroads, which is kind of a misnomer because Crossroads is there. It's here. It's, it's lots of places. We're a network of people here in northern Colorado based, but really all over the place. I get just last week, I got an email from uh, somebody in Arizona who has connected and found us and love what we're about and is connecting and is a part of the family. I got an email from another person. And so it's great. And that's what we want. We want to be much broader than just right here, but uh, I'm here standing in the Taft Avenue campus facility with a few folks who've come in and you're wearing your masks. So beautiful. Thank you for doing that. Uh, and uh, if you're tuning in at home safely, we're, I'm so glad you're uh, watching and connecting. That's the key is that we connect. We're in a series, Peace on Earth, that we launched last week with kind of the unveiling of our Peace is Worth It. If you weren't able to tune in for that, listen to that, I would encourage you to listen to the podcast, get connected, get up to speed, because uh, we're going to be talking about that, because the, the Peace is Worth It, we're pledging to one another in some areas of our lives for the health and the future of our church, and uh, it's exciting times. So check that message out and be ready. We're going to be making these pledges, hopefully between now and Christmas Eve, we launch it all on Christmas Eve. And uh, whether you're coming into the space for one of the Christmas Eve gatherings or whether you are going to tune in with your family at home, we got a great Christmas Eve experience planned for everybody. So good stuff. I got to tell you that the, the 11 o'clock service is a weird crowd. You're a weird crowd. I'm just going to throw that out there. And that, that's not a bad word. It's just you're weird. You're, I think what it is, is you're super attentive and it freaks me out a little bit. It freaks me out a little bit. So I'm going to pretend you're not here because you make me nervous. I don't know. It's like you can read my mail or something. Like, I don't know. But hey, listen. So let me ask you all a question. If you're in the room, raise your hand. If you're at home, uh, pretend you're in the room, raise your hand, wherever it might be. Have you ever found yourself unwilling to do something you've been asked? <laughs> Completely unwilling. You say, I'm not doing it. And you put your foot down. And then... You go do it because it was your spouse, you know, or whatever. No, but like there's things you're just unwilling to do. I can tell you in my life, there's, a, there's something that I'm unwilling to do. I don't think I'll ever do it. And that is to ride this roller coaster called the Thrill Dragster at Cedar Point. How many have been to Cedar Point? Anybody ever been to Cedar Point? One of these, how many have ever been to an amusement park with roller coasters? How many of you are roller coaster people? You love roller coasters. You just are silly and ridiculous and some might say dumb. <laughs> not me though. I wouldn't say that. Others would. I'm not a roller coaster person. I really don't like um, roller coasters. That makes me not a roller coaster person, right? This roller coaster, this dragster, my wife loves and my daughter loves it. And we used to go to Cedar Point. We would meet my wife's family there in the summertime and we'd go for three or four days, and, uh, which is awesome if you're not a roller coaster person. But we would have a, a lot of fun. And, uh, and this ride though is crazy. They sit you in what looks like a, a, a a car, like a dragster, and then it shoots you out. I mean, it just shoots you out of this, like, shoot. You're sitting in it, and you just, like, it goes red, yellow, green, and it shoots you out at, like, 500 miles an hour, <laughs> straight. And then you hit this thing that you go up, like, it's launching you into outer space, and then you barely crest the top of this thing that's like six miles up, which is close to the atmosphere, if you know anything. <laughs> and then it 
just free, shoots you back down. Now, this thing propels you so fast that when you're sitting there getting ready to go, you cannot have your arm. They tell you don't put your arms up because they'll rip your arm right off your body. So it goes red, and then you have these morons that go, ah! right? And then like, they, they start all over, and somebody goes, please keep your arm in the vehicle so you have it when we're done. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's like some 15-year-old on work release who is like manning this thing, and I'm, the, and I'm considered the, the chicken for not doing this. I'm not doing it. And I'm not doing it for a couple of reasons. Because one, it makes me uncomfortable. The idea of a 15-year-old that can't do long division propelling me 500 miles an hour up a machine, a ride that is actually designed for failure. Did you know that? It's designed to fail. So this thing will every so often not propel you fast enough because they didn't do the math right and they got too much weight in the car or whatever it might be. And it'll get just to the top. It won't make it. And it will roll backwards. And you have to do it again. I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not doing it. I like to be in control. I'm not in control. I don't get to say when we go red, yellow, green. I'm just sitting there at the mercy again of some 15-year-old who can't do long division but yet can take my life. I'm not doing it. And the reality is that's why we don't do a lot of things that we say we're unwilling to do, right? Yeah, you, you, you're in a situation with uh, somebody and, and, and you're kind of, no, I got I to gotta go say I'm sorry. How many of y'all love to say you're sorry? It's your favorite thing in the world. It's just my favorite. Like, I'm not doing it. Or you got to tell somebody you forgive them or you need to just forgive. So, like, these are bigger things than roller coasters, right? Be like, I'm not doing it. And why don't we do these things? There are things in our lives that we just put our foot down. We say, I'm not going to do it because it just makes us too uncomfortable. At the end of the day, we are people that love our comfort zone. We're going to stay right where it is. It's just too uncomfortable. Or we just feel a little too out of control, right? We just don't, we're not going to commit. We don't want to say yes. We're, we're not going to offer that forgiveness because then I'm out of control. Like I'm in control. Like if I'm the one who, who holds the, the like, oh, I'm not going to forgive that person. Like they need to come and, and I hold it. Now I'm in control of things. But ultimately, when there are things in our lives that we say, I'm unwilling to do, it's because of these two things. Now, here's, here's the problem with that, right? I'm going to make an assumption about you today. And the assumption is that if you're in the room or if you're watching online, that you, you, there's something inside of you that wants to experience God, right? You want to explore this thing of faith. I'm not sure where you are in your journey of faith. I don't know. But, but I would say that if you've tuned into a, a church service like this or, or you're a part of a church, there's something inside of you that says, I want to encounter God. I want to grow in that understanding. I, I want to be challenged. I, I want to get that. But here's the thing. This is what I've learned. As a pastor, as a person who's walked with people through all kinds of circumstances, as a person who has studied scripture and said, okay, here's, like, here's the history of how people have encountered the divine. The only way that I see people ever really encountering the divine, the power of God, is in the middle of discomfort and powerlessness. And you and I are people that we love our comfort and we love our power. And so we live in this kind of paradox that there's something deep inside of us that wants to experience God, but we don't want to put ourselves into the space of discomfort that is required to experience God. Or we don't want to give up the power 
that's, that's necessary so that we might experience the power of God. It's like this old statement that maybe you've heard, fill in the blank. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. <laughs> maybe it's not as old as I thought it was. <laughs> Everybody wants to go to heaven, right? Everybody wants that picture, whatever you were given of this idea of what heaven is. Some place far out in outer space, whatever it might be, where everything is perfect. And if you're a fisherman, every time you cast, you catch that fish, right? Whatever it is. But heaven is perfect and there's just gold everywhere and a big mansion for you and all this good stuff. Like you want that. But then if I were to say it's perfect, I just, you just need to die. Well, now we're like, well, hold on. I'm not in a hurry. Like, I mean, the idea of it is good, but I don't really want to go through that, right? Because there's something about death that's uncomfortable, <laughs> right? There's something about death that feels a little bit of powerlessness. So we hold that tension. Or we would say, oh, I would love to experience the miraculous, right? How many of us would just love to see a good old-fashioned miracle? I'd love to experience the miraculous in my life. But do we really want to put ourselves out and live in such a way that we require the miracle, it's like, oh, I want to experience the comfort of God, but to experience the comfort of God means that I, have to, I, I need to be in a space of discomfort. So it's almost as if as people of faith, we've just tried to like have our cake and eat it too in a lot of ways. And the Western world is pretty good at this. We're pretty good at being able to live out our values of consumerism and wealth and power. And we've somehow equated that with this Jesus, you know, who didn't have anything and had no money and walked around talking about giving up everything. But we've, we've put that together. It's like we missed the wisdom of Mary, right? Mary gives us this incredible picture of what it means to put ourselves in a situation, in a circumstance where we actually experience the favor of God and it looks very different than the favor of God. We actually come to a space like Mary shows us and models for us what it actually means to say yes to uh, uncomfortable things, to say yes to a sense of powerlessness. Now, Mary is defined in Luke chapter one as a person who found favor with God. And that sounds really great. Right? I think we, we hear this all the time, like, I would love to live in the favor of God. And that sounds so wonderful to us because we equate the favor of God with what we think about when, when we think of this phrase, the favor of men. Right? So we think if I find favor in someone's eyes, that means I got the promotion. Right? If I went and applied for a job and my parents would help me to find favor with the person who is interviewing me, it means that they were impressed with me enough that now I got the job. Or if it comes time for the review board to give me the promotion, I found favor in their eyes. We see this idea of the favor of men all throughout scripture, particularly probably the, the big, probably the most famous example of it, if you've been a Bible person for a while, is the story of Joseph. Joseph finds favor in the eyes of Potiphar. He finds favor in the eyes of the jailer. He finds favor in the eyes of Pharaoh. And this always leads to promotion. But when we look at the life of Mary, who more than any other person in scripture is defined as having favor with God, we find that the favor of God looks very different. So what I'd like to do is run through a few verses in Luke together with us, see if we can't find some wisdom to help us understand what does it really mean to have the favor of God and how do we then live in that favor and what can we expect it to look like in our lives? And what difference does it make anyway? How is it going to make our lives better, the world a better place? So hang on with me here for the next few minutes. Luke chapter 1 says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel, whoops, I hit the button. It says the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a town of Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name 
was Mary. So we're immediately given the storyteller here, Luke, is telling us, hey, this happened. This is what's going on. It happened in this little place called Nazareth in a town of Galilee. I love that, the, that Luke has to like lay that all out because Luke's audience would have no idea where this was. <laughs> I mean, this is such a little podunk village somewhere in some outer rim of the universe, right? And they're just like, who, where is But this is where the story starts. It starts in Nowheresville with nobody. That's the beauty of the story. Like this great cosmic reality that Luke's audience has come to put their faith in. Because Luke is writing this story 50, 60, 70 years after it happened to a group of people who put their faith and trust in this Jesus. And he's like, hey, it started back in nowhere land. And this angel comes to her and says, hail, favored one. The Lord is with you. But Mary was greatly troubled at what was said and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. In other words, like nobody's ever greeted this way. What is this talking about? Why is there an angel in front of me? This isn't a good thing, right? An angel shows up, it unnerves her. And I think we can learn a principle here that the favor of God can be unnerving, right? Mary, she's favored by God. Who knows why she's favored by God? She's this young girl, probably 13, 14 years old, doesn't really have anything to offer the universe. She's got no money, I'm sure of that. She's not educated. She's engaged to be married to some older guy. She's going to live her life. And this angel shows up and says, hey, this is good news. And obviously she's afraid because the next verse says, the angel said to her, don't be afraid, (laughs) which is a very common response when an angel shows up, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but like I I hear people all the time say, I just wish God would show up and I would just know. I'm like, no, I don't. I'll take all my doubts and fears and confusion. I'm fine with that. Do not send an angel to my Nazareth. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't need that in my life, right? Every time we hear of an angel appearing or being a part of the story, like this was like that, like heaven's Navy SEAL showing up. It's not somebody you want over for dinner, you know? But she shows up, Mary's afraid. And this angel says, don't be afraid. You found favor with God. And I'd be like, really? This is favor with God? Why God leave me alone? You know, I feel like that'd be better. Like this is frightening. He says, no, no, you found favor with God. You'll conceive in your womb and you're going to bear a son and you'll name him Jesus. And he will be great and he'll be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of David, his father. And he will rule over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And I think Mary's like, yeah, right. But there's got to be a part of Mary that's like, this is way bigger than me. I'm supposed to, I'm going to give birth to the next king? What? Here's what's fascinating. So Mary, the favored one, the fact that she found favor, she was invited into the story. Like divine favor invited Mary into this space that she got to see that her life was not about herself. When you find yourself in divine favor, you realize, boy, I'm like Mary being invited out of myself and into the cosmic story, the big story, not the story of Christianity, not the story of crossroads, not the story of your life, your neighborhood, your address, but the story of creation, the cosmic story, the story of a kingdom that will never end. And that's what divine favor was doing in Mary's life. Because she was favored by God, she's invited into the story. That's what divine favor is, is the ability to see I get to be a part of this great big story. And Mary says to the angel, I think a reasonable response, well, how's this going to happen? 
Like, how's this going to work? Because I have no relations with a man. I'm a virgin. Like, this, you're, what you're talking about, there's usually a general equation. One plus one equals three. You're talking about one plus none equals two, at least. I don't get that math. Something we can learn about divine favor here, right, is it was confusing to Mary. You call me favored of God, and I don't even understand what that means, she says. You tell me, don't be afraid, I'm going to have a son, that's great. Everybody, like me, wants a son, that's what she's thinking. This is my best contribution in the world that she lived in. This was awesome. This was going to show that she was blessed by God to to produce a son. But how's this going to work? How and the angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And I think if you're Mary in this moment, like four minutes into the conversation, <laughs> you're like, yeah, that doesn't explain much to me. Like, I don't get it still, right? Like, that, that makes sense. It's like you've been a part of a faith community for 10, 15 years and you've been taught about the Holy Spirit and, and we've kind of lived in this and we've seen the little manger scenes and we hear the story and we sing round yon virgin mother and child. But if you're five minutes into this deal and you're, you're given this as your answer, I've got to imagine there's still a part of you that's like not fully understanding that because the Holy Spirit was not part of the human conscious at this point. The Holy Spirit, the idea that the Spirit of God could be present in all things and in all people, that was not how this, the Holy Spirit was reserved for those people that were the prophets and the kings and and ecstatic things and not me, not this nobody from this nowhereville. And there's this confusion and, and the angel goes on and says, but listen, Elizabeth, your relative, right? She's also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called barren. It says, for nothing will be impossible for God. In other words, it's like, you just got to trust me. Nothing is impossible for God. And here's the deal. You're favored by God. And so the miraculous is going to come into your life. See, divine favor brought the miraculous into Mary's life. That's a part of it. When we, when we experience the divine favor, when we live in it, we know that God can work in ways that we could not possibly imagine. And we know from Mary's life that being invited into the miraculous did not mean that she was going to be exempt from suffering. And so Mary gives us this beautiful response in the midst of her confusion, in the midst of her unnervedness. And she looks at this angel and she says, behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel leaves. I love that in this moment, Mary chose to participate. She said, I'm in. I'm in for the big story. And I think this helps us understand and gives us a bit of the answer to why Mary. I don't know about you, but I often wonder that. Why Mary? Why this girl from Nowheresville? Why, what was so special about Mary? And some people say, well, there's nothing special about Mary. It's just God. I don't think that's accurate. I think there was something unique about her that made her the perfect receptor at this perfect time in this perfect moment in human history. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, gives us this very interesting statement about God. The Spirit of God would say, the eyes of the Lord roam over the whole earth to encourage those who are devoted to Him wholeheartedly. And I think what we have in Mary is this picture of a person who had a disposition and a devotion that was wholehearted towards the story of God. 
right, that Mary, she was devoted wholeheartedly to the story. That there was something about her life, there was something about her choices, there was something about her passions, her disposition in her short-lived life up to this point that the Spirit of God knew that this was the person who would not argue her yes. She wouldn't argue her yes. Right? We look at some of the great, you know, uh, heroes of faith, and they always argue before they say yes. Moses, I can't talk. Oh, my, I can't talk. I, it's not me. I'm not the person. But Mary, she's just like, let it happen. I'm in. Without answers, without conclusions, she says, I'm your servant. And this, I think, is the reality of what divine favor is. So go with me on this. Divine favor, that is not something that sits outside of us, that we work our way towards, and then God says, well, now I'll put my favor in you. But divine favor actually flows and comes about through our willingness to participate wholeheartedly in peace on earth. So I think that was the disposition of Mary. She says, I'm in, you can have all of me. I'm willing to participate in what the angel said would happen, right? In Luke chapter two, it says, peace on earth. That's the whole point of the incarnation. We brought that up last week. And it was Mary's willingness to participate, just participate, not have all the answers, not be the hero, not, I don't, not know everything, but yes. And so divine favor, the work of God flows through the yes. And so what does this have to do with your life? What does it mean for you and I then to take some of these lessons, to look at Mary's life as a point of wisdom and say, well, what does that mean for me? If I want to daily live in the favor of God, if I want to daily live in this idea that God can use me for cosmic purposes and plans, what does that mean? Well, I think, first of all, we need to develop a disposition towards yes. And the truth is, most of us, if we're on a good day, we have like a disposition towards maybe. Like, we're a maybe people. That's what we are, right? In all honesty. We're kind of like, it depends, God. <laughs> it depends on what I got going on, right? God presents and puts in front of us a, a suffering one, a marginalized one that might require a, an eye contact, a roll of the window, a pausing and asking of how are you doing, an extra cup of coffee. And really, we just say, well, I don't know. It just depends on what's going on. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying no, God. I'm not, I'm not saying never, no, I would never say no to you, God. But I mean, Thursday might be better, <laughs> right? Like right now, I've got to pick up the kids. And, and I haven't left a whole lot of time. I just got to. But we need a disposition towards yes. Like when those opportunities come our path, in our path, we have to learn to discern that this is the Spirit of God inviting us to carry the Christ in our womb, in our very being, and to say yes. Not maybe, not no, but yes. And we have to say yes with eyes wide open, fully understanding of what that means. Because for Mary to say yes certainly meant joy, the joy of a child, raising a child, this, all that, but it certainly meant a lot of work, and it would mean a lot of pain. And so we can learn from Mary that when we say yes, we decide we want to live in this favor. We want to live in the divine plan for our lives, for this universe. We have to embrace the fact that confusion and fear and nervousness are all a part of this miraculous work. That you can't have the miraculous, you can't have the favor of God and not do anything that is, is perfect and just make sure everything's perfectly clear. You're going to have to do things that promote fear in your life. 
You're going to have to do things that make you nervous. That's what a yes to the divine favor will do. And so we always, when we want to live in this space, we always toe the line between foolishness and faithfulness. We always toe the line between stepping out in faith, but making sure we're not being foolish in the way in which we do it. And right now we're in this season of a church where uh, we're calling on one another to pledge to one another three things this year, time, talent, and treasure. To pledge these in new ways, in creative ways, in inventive ways, in above and beyond ways. And so let's, let's talk about these for a moment. So we're saying, hey, we want to pledge our time. And let's say you're a once every two-monther to participate in church like this. You, know, you log in once every two months. Let's just say it's you. And you happen to hear it. You go, you know what? I sense the stirring. I'm going to do it. Might I encourage you that you might not start with a pledge to say, well, you know what? I'm going to participate in five things a week. That might be foolishness. I mean, it might not be. You might have that disposition to go for it, but maybe it just starts with, you know what? I'm going to give one hour a week. I'm going to tune in, and that's, I'm gonna, that's where I'm going to get equipped. We talk about using our talents, which really means pledging our gifts to the service, to the work of peacemaking in both the gathered church setting and the scattered church setting. So we volunteer our, our talents and, and here's what I would say to you, a faith-filled thing. is like you say, well, I'm right now on a once-a-month team. You know, I volunteer once a month. So for you, a faith-filled response, well, I'm going to volunteer twice a month. I'm going to give. I'm going to volunteer in two hours. Maybe that's it. If you've never volunteered, ever, if you've never been nice to anybody in your life, <laughs> let's start there, right? My suggestion to you would be not to say, I'm going to pledge 25 hours a day of using my talents for the life of our church. You're going to fail miserably at that. <laughs> but what might be is your first step is say, well, I'm going to find some way to once a month give one hour of my talents. That's a great, because there's some faith there. Now, if you're currently like volunteering, you're giving your talents two hours a week, three hours a week, you may say, well, I'm going to step it up. Right? And that's the idea here. A little bit of faith, but not foolishness. And then we're asking everybody to give above and beyond your regular offerings, your regular giving. And we've broken that down. And now here's what I would say to you about that. If you've never given to anyone anything in your life, <laughs> and you know who I'm talking to. You're in the room. I get it. <laughs> you've the thought has never crossed your mind to share anything. <laughs> I would suggest that you don't say, well, you know what? I'm going to give 75% of my income to the poor this year. <laughs> You're going to fail miserably. <laughs> but you might just say, start with one. I'm going to give five bucks a week. And if you're maybe uh, been walking in faith and a part of a church and, and giving 10% is a part of your life, you might say, you know what? This year, I'm going to give 15%. That's a faith step for you. We all have these different steps of faith, but we want to toe the line. We want to do something that makes us a little nervous, a little fearful, a little anxious in all of these areas but not something so foolish that we would never be able to do it. And just like Mary, I believe as we start to live into our yeses, as we start to embrace the confusion of it all, I think that we'll start to live in and see the miraculous in our lives, but we always have to remember that miraculous may bring suffering. Because to need a miracle puts you in a space where you probably haven't got your way, and that's how we define suffering is just not getting my way. It's all different levels. 
But we go into it with eyes wide open. Okay, I, I, this, the miraculous in my life may require and may mean that I'm going to be a part of someone suffering, that I'm going to suffer myself. And when I'm in the suffering, here's what I would encourage you to remember. The call of the follower of Jesus is not to have all the answers, not to alleviate all the suffering. The call is actually to just participate. Like we want to orchestrate. We want to say, here's how it works. We want to direct our whole lives. We want to get everything in a row. And God says, just stop that. Stop it, stop it, stop it. I'm just asking for your yes. I'm just asking for you to participate in the divine will. And when suffering comes your way, and it will, Jesus said it definitely will, to just stay as a participant, to stay in it. And if we'll do this, if we'll say, okay, I want to live in the divine favor. I want to live in this space where my life is part of the big story. I want to live in such a way that the miraculous flows through me to others in me. That I I really do want to, I want to live a faithfulness. That's what it takes to live in the kingdom. And that will make this world a better place. It will make your life better. It won't make your life necessarily easier. I'm not going to lie to you there. (laughs) But it will make your life better. And here's why. Because it will take whatever we think is mundane and it will make it sacred. Because when we're willing to participate in the story, the big story, we'll discover the sacredness of the journey that we're on. That you're on a sacred journey. That your life can be part of and is part of this big cosmic work that God is doing in the world, bringing about righteousness and peace and hope. You know, as we kind of wrap up, uh, there's a this idea of a sacred journey, a big journey, probably one of the most famous journeys that kind of took us by storm over the last 15, 20 years has been uh, the Lord of the Rings. How many of you have seen the Lord of the Rings movies, the trilogies? You love it. People are like ring crazy, you know. Lord of the Rings, the first one, the Fellowship of the Ring, Frodo, who's uh, kind of the main Hobbit character in the movie, who's been given the task of taking this magical ring and returning it and destroying it in the fires of Mordor, right? Now, for those of you that are like super nerdy Lord of the Rings, like I'm probably going to get some things right because I don't have like the whole thing memorized, okay? I'm probably going to get some things wrong, so just have grace for me, right? But Frodo, my understanding is he's taking this ring and he's been given the task of destroying it because the only place it can be destroyed in Mordor and there's all kinds of bad stuff there and it's a very perilous journey. And after the whole first movie, the whole first book, Fellowship of the Rings, we find Frodo standing at the edge of a lake, faced with this choice to accept the task that he's been given that has to happen right now. The ring has to be destroyed right now. It's not a matter of let's bury it, but it has to happen right now. And, and, and in the movie, as he's standing there on the shore, his hand opens up and, and you see the ring. And he says to himself, I wish it need not have happened in my time. I wish it need not have happened in my time. And all of a sudden he hears the voice of Gandalf, right? The wise. He hears this voice in his head and Gandalf says, so do I, I'm with you. And so do all who live to see such times. In other words, nobody wants it to happen in their time. Nobody wants to have the pandemic in their time. Nobody wants to be walking through this in their time. I don't want to have to, this is not, I wish it wouldn't have had to have happened in my time. But then Gandalf gives these great wise words. He says, but that is not for them to decide. I'm sure Mary would say, I wish it wouldn't have had to have happened in my time. Why did I have to bear that burden, that pain, that hurt of watching my son beaten and flogged? 
in a mock trial, crucified, naked. I wish that that didn't have to happen in my time. But Gandalf then says, all we have to do is to decide what to do with the time that is given us. That's all we have. All we have is the decision. Will I participate in this big story? Will I take what's been given me? What will I do with it? And in that moment, Frodo musters up all his courage and he jumps in the boat and he starts across the lake. And you think, what a beautiful scene. But here's where it gets really good. Here's where it gets really powerful. And here's where I think the parable and the metaphor for our lives is fantastic and we don't see it a lot. So Frodo says yes to the journey. He's in it, but he thinks he's got to do it by himself. So he starts out on this journey by himself. And you see through the forest, his buddy Sam comes running through. And he's yelling, Mr. Frodo, Mr. Frodo, Mr. Frodo, wait, wait, wait. And Sam is paddling and he says, and, or excuse me, Frodo's paddling and he looks back and Sam starts walking through the water and he's yelling, Mr. Frodo, wait. And Frodo hollers back, go back, Sam. I'm going to Mordor alone. And you know what Sam says? Of course you are. And I'm going with you. Persistent little guy. And so he starts to tread out. The problem, though, is Sam can't swim. And Frodo knows it. And Frodo says, Sam, you got to go back. You can't swim. And he says, I'm going with you. And he goes out and he starts to sink. And Sam is sinking. And in the movie, you see this visual of him. He's sinking and his eyes close. And his hands are floating. And at just the right moment, Frodo reaches into the water, grabs his hand and pulls him up. And just the right time, Frodo accepts the help of Sam, pulls him into the boat. And now they're both sitting there and they're both crying and they're both looking ahead at this journey together. And Sam says, I made a promise, Mr. Frodo, a promise. And he refers back to a a, a conversation that he had had with Gandalf about what he was supposed to be doing. And he says, don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee. And I don't mean to. I don't mean to. Now, here's what I think. I think that we all think that Frodo is the star of the story. And if we were to like have this picture of like, where do I fit in the story? And where's God and Jesus and everything? of God, the favor of God, it's Sam. It's Sam. Because there's a weakness to Sam. There's a frailty to Sam. There's a powerlessness to Sam who says, I will suffer and suffer along and go with you, and I'll venture into things that I can't accomplish, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to be with you. And Frodo, at some point, has to make the choice to allow Sam to participate with. Not only does he have to choose to participate, but at some point, he has to stick his hand in that water and pull Sam into the boat. And at some point, as the Spirit of God is calling out to you and to me in our lives, saying, I know you think you have to go with this alone, but I'm going with you. At some point, we have to pull the favor of God, the spirit of God out of the water and into the boat with us. And I was reminded, as Sam said, of course, you're going to go by yourself, but I'm going with you. And he wasn't going to let anything stop him. I was reminded of Jesus' statement when he looked at his disciples and he said, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. I'm with you always. It's as if the Spirit of God is saying to you today, whatever that journey is that you're on, whatever boat you're in, I know you mean to think that you have to go by yourself, but I've been given a mission to go with you. 
I'm going to be with you. If you're at home, if you're in the room, would you just close your eyes for a second? As we think for a moment, like, what is God inviting you into today? I just want you to think, I, don't, I can't pretend to know all of your circumstances. But I know that you have circumstances. I can't pretend to know whatever the, the journey is that you have ahead of you. But I just have to believe you're in a boat and maybe you feel like you have to go it alone. And I just wonder if you'll imagine yourself as the Spirit of God is pursuing you because I believe that the Spirit of Christ pursues us. But it drowns in our pride and it drowns in our doubts and it drowns in in our fears. It drowns, but you can actually in this moment make a choice to participate. And I just wonder if you would imagine yourself, whatever boat you're in, whatever journey you're in, whatever it is ahead of you that you don't know that you can get through, if you'll just imagine yourself putting your hand in that water and taking a hold of the Spirit of God and bringing the Spirit of God into the boat with you and accepting the support and belief that God is there with you and that there's nothing you could ever do that would separate you from this love that is the favor of God. Father, would you help us to see? Help us to see your spirit. Help us to see us pulling your spirit into the boat with us. First, Lord, as individuals, as the scattered church who are out living our lives, our everyday normal lives in workplaces that are suffering, in neighborhoods that are suffering, surrounded, and oftentimes in our own lives, We have our own areas that are crumbling around us in the midst of this pandemic and we don't know what to do, but we feel like we gotta paddle and do all this alone. Help us, Lord, to bring you into the boat, to bring this suffering God who participates with us into the boat, to live in the favor of God that gives us the strength to walk through it. And Lord, as a church, as a gathered church, help us to know that you're with us as we pledge to one another to not let a pandemic slow down the work that you have for us. So this morning, may God bless you and keep you. May love shine in you and through you and on you. May as you log off of this online experience, may as you leave this place today, may you walk out knowing that you don't walk alone that when you say yes to participate with God, that you are living in the divine favor and that there is a power beyond yourself to walk through the suffering that love requires of you and of us. May you share in the glory that is God's. May you hear the spirit whisper to you, of course you think you're going alone but I'm going with you. May you find hope in that. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the moments this week, just this week, that you're inviting us to carry your son in our wombs, to carry your son with us, to bring your hope, your joy. And may we recognize 
that it will be unnerving. May we embrace that it will produce fear. May we long to see the miracles. And may we know that you can sustain and walk us through the suffering that comes with. So that we might enter the joy of suffering just as Christ did. In Jesus' name.